This is the Nietzsche Podcast. Happy holidays. <laughs> How's it going, everybody? It's been another year of the Nietzsche Podcast. Can you believe it? I mean, I can't. It's been a year since the last Nietzsche Podcast Christmas special. Actually, also the first Nietzsche Podcast Christmas special. And I wanted to do it again this year because I had so much fun last time, uh, you know, getting my conversation partners and past guests on the show to offer up some segment to the episode. And uh, everyone kind of brings their own style and their own ideas. And it's a nice little variety show. So uh, we decided to do that again. And the theme this year is birth death, and resurrection. Uh, The theme obviously correlates with Jesus Christ, but also correlates with Dionysus. Dionysus is another one of those deities from antiquity that is resurrected, and the parallel uh, was just too good to pass up. Once again, I had a blast producing my segment, um, because, you know, I get to, you know, talk about something that's a little bit outside of the realm of philosophy. Of course, it ended up running way longer than I anticipated, but uh, whatever, it's my show. I guess I get to have the longest segment. Uh, I also really enjoyed listening to the segments that the other contributors uh, provided. And all in all, really what we're doing is just sort of celebrating another year on this planet, another revolution around the sun, and another year of the podcast. I'm grateful to have such insightful people around me and willing to help put together an episode with me like this. So thank you, everybody who participated. Thank you to all of you for listening. Uh, I just got the Spotify year-end data not too long ago. Um, I'm uh, ha- My heart is warmed by the success that uh, this podcast has seen, and it, it just continues to blow my mind. So thank you to all of you. Uh, A couple notes. For one, there's not going to be an episode this following week. Consider it a holiday break, or you can consider this episode the episode for next week. It's obviously coming out um, before the uh, week of Christmas because Christmas occurs on a Monday, and I wanted all of you to be able to hear it before Christmas because on the actual holiday, I'm sure you're going to be busy with family and maybe people are traveling and the podcast being out will give you something to listen to if you have a drive or something like that. But also just, you know, more of a chance that you'll have a chance to listen to it while it's still in the holiday season. Uh, That being said, it's coming out at the end of this week and the week of that starts on Christmas Day. There's not going to be another episode. We're going to pick back up with Deleuze the following week with the second and concluding episode of uh, our discussion of Nietzsche and philosophy. So look forward to that. Uh, Beyond that, I've also got an Untimely Reflections episode that I'm very excited about. That'll either come out on that same Friday or the following week. I haven't, haven't quite figured out when that's going to be, but a lot of exciting stuff coming very soon. So enough ado. Thank you to everyone for tuning in once more to the Nietzsche podcast. And if you're really in the holiday spirit and you've become a listener since, you know, within this past year, there's another Christmas episode from last year that you can go and uh, check out. So I encourage you all to do that. Uh, All right, let's get into it. 
the Nietzsche podcast Christmas special. Cheers. Andre Georgescu, The Christmas That Killed God. Gaudete Christus est natus. Ladies and gentlemen, during Christmas Eve a few years ago, I was listening to talk radio, and one of the callers was an indignant old man who told the audience that we need to put Christ back in Christmas. But I wonder, at what point did Christ disappear? It seems no one has told the old man of the fateful Christmas of 1864. Ah, 1864. You know, in many ways, 1864 was just like any other year. The Hunan army slaughtered hundreds of thousands of civilians in Nanjing. 70,000 people died in a cyclone in Calcutta. And the Central Park Zoo opened in New York City. But more importantly for us, 1864 was the first year that Nietzsche spent Christmas away from home. And 1864 was also the year that David Strauss released a new version of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined, which he called The Life of Jesus for the German People. Now, it's hard to imagine a book having quite the same impact today as David Strauss's Life of Jesus, originally published in 1835. There was some strong language in reaction to it. For example, the Earl of Shaftesbury described Strauss's book as, quote, the most pestilential book ever vomited out of the jaws of hell, end quote. Strauss's own father said that he was cursed by God because his son had written The Life of Jesus. More moderate voices like the Reverend Albert Schweitzer said that when it comes to academic research about the historical Jesus, There is the period before David Strauss and the period after David Strauss. But the work of Strauss also had an important impact outside of intellectual circles. Ferdinand Bauer wrote to L.F. Hyde that there was a, quote, panic-stricken terror among regular folk. And between 1835 and 1839, there were about 60 books written condemning Strauss. As Frederick Beiser explains, it can be safely said that Strauss's book was the most controversial German publication of the whole 19th century, and it pretty much destroyed his life. He was seen as the Antichrist, and no one wanted to have anything to do with him lest they get infected by his godless stench. Beiser explains that the conservative theory of the German state rested on the authority of Christian revelation. And if it turns out to be a bunch of myth-making with no basis in historical fact, who the heck's going to be in charge and why? If there isn't some God-given hierarchy, why is a prince any more special than a simple farmer like me? And Strauss figured he might have an easier time in Zurich, since a group of radicals had gotten control of the city council there, and as part of their educational reforms, They started a new university that had a few political refugees from Germany in its theology department. After years of back and forth, along with various political machinations, Strauss was finally approved into the theology department in Zurich. And the clergy went nuts. 
They riled people up with the slogan, religion in danger. They went to the streets with chants similar to, hey, ho, Dr. Strauss has got to go, and effigies of Strauss were burned as a whole thing. In the end, the pressure was too much. So Strauss was eventually let go with a pension that he decided to donate to the poor, arguably a gigachad move. But the protesters didn't stop there, since they had other demands which would ensure that someone like Strauss would never jeopardize biblical literalism or encourage critical attitudes towards the holy book. Uh, lots of people marched with pitchforks and scythes and clubs, well, technically morning stars, which I think are kind of mace. And, you know, it's kind of a cartoon picture of a mob. And there was lots of fighting, even shots were fired. About 15 people died. This is all to say that the book was a big deal. And 25 years later, a new and revised edition was released. This is 1864's edition. And Friedrich Nietzsche, who had just turned 20 in October, and his university bestie Paul Doyson, well, Freddie and Paul proved to be the perfect audience since they were intelligent and curious young men when they read the book around Christmas time. And Doyson was mesmerized by the analytical sharpness of Strauss's book. It really is a masterpiece. But Nietzsche was quite hesitant, explaining that, quote, there is a serious consequence. If you give up Christ, you will have to give up God, too. End quote. Well, that Christmas of 64, God was mortally wounded. On New Year's Eve, Nietzsche seemed to see the death of his old self. Quote, it is the last few hours before midnight. I have been rummaging among my manuscripts and letters, drinking punch and then playing the Requiem from Schumann's Manfred. Now I want to shut out everything alien and think only of myself. The spirit flies swiftly through the towns it loves, lingering in Naumburg, then in Forta and Plauen, returning finally to my room. My room? What do I see in my bed? Someone lying there, moaning faintly, a death rattle in his throat, a dying man. End quote. Indeed, when Friedrich came home for Easter the following spring, his sister Elizabeth met a different person. He no longer wanted to go to church. And despite his mother's insistence, he refused to take Easter communion. Well, R.I.P. God. Elizabeth began to weep and only calmed down once her aunt Rosalie told her that, well, every theologian has doubts about God from time to time. Nonetheless, Elizabeth was shaken to her core since she'd always trusted and admired her clever older brother. How could he go against God? And although their mother had forbidden discussion of belief in their letters, Nietzsche wrote the following to Elizabeth. Quote, if we'd believed from youth onwards that the soul's salvation depended on someone other than Jesus, on Muhammad's sake, we would no doubt have felt equally blessed. Surely it's faith alone that imparts blessedness, not the objective behind the faith. Genuine faith never fails. It fulfills whatever the believer expects from it, but it does not offer the slenderest support for a demonstration of objective truth. Here the ways of men divide. Do you want to strive for peace of mind and happiness? Then believe. Do you want to be a devotee of truth? Then seek. End quote. However, I think that Nietzsche wasn't going to let 
Strauss off the hook that easily for disturbing his peace of mind. When Nietzsche met Wagner in 1872, Wagner told him that David Strauss's new book, The Old and the New Faith, was kind of a stinker, and Nietzsche read it and agreed. It's garbage, you know, screw that guy. What does he know? And uh, Cosima Wagner, Richard's wife, who Nietzsche had a little crush on, well, she wrote to him later on, and she piled on Strauss as well. So Nietzsche told, you know, that. <laughs> Nietzsche told her that she's going to write a hit piece on him. And he said, quote, It will be a choice selection of his stylistic excesses, which will show once and for all what this supposed classic really is. End quote. He put classic in, in quotes there. What's interesting about the vicious tone in the piece of writing that resulted is how much Strauss's beliefs resemble the ones held by the popular image of Nietzsche. Consider this passage from The Old and the New Faith, and let me know if it reminds you of anything, perhaps even Zarathustra's central teaching. Quote, Even as the order of nature, such as it now exists, has evolved itself out of chaos, so likewise... Can it again evolve itself out of the new chaos occasioned by its destruction? Especially as Kant conceives the destruction is taking place by combustion, by which the same conditions must again be produced as those whence, according to him, our planetary system was primarily evolved. The cosmos itself, the sum total of infinite worlds in all stages of growth and decay, abode eternally unchanged, in the constancy of its absolute energy amid the everlasting revolution and mutation of things, end quote. Well, it's almost as if it's some kind of eternal repetition or reappearance. I don't know. You guys got to help me out here. I'm just a, I'm a simple farmer. Now, the old and the new faith was a kind of prototype of book like The Gay Science, as well as other Nietzschean projects, the catchphrase from the book that caught on in its time was, we are no longer Christians, a less spicy version of God is dead. In the early 1860s, Strauss's brother Wilhelm said he ought to write a kind of uh, catechism for freethinkers, he called it. Maybe a, a Koran for unbelievers? Wink, wink. Here's another quote. In man, Nature endeavored not merely to exalt, but to transcend herself. He must not, therefore, be merely an animal repeated. He must be something more, something better. He ought because he can. The sensual efforts and enjoyments are already fully developed and exhausted in the animal kingdom. It's not for their sakes that man exists, as in fact no creature exists for the sake of that which was already attained on lower stages of existence but for that which has been newly conquered through itself, end quote. Now, what are, you, what are you saying, Dr. Strauss? That man must transcend himself into some kind of beyond man or ultraman? I don't know. For a simple farmer like me, it sounds a little crazy. Or how about this? Quote, to demand an exception in the accomplishment of a single natural law would be to demand the destruction of the universe. Imperceptibly at last, by the kindly force of habit, the universe leads us to adapt ourselves to a less perfect condition, should we be placed in such, and to perceive at last 
that only the form of our frame of mind is conditioned by external circumstances, and that its substance of happiness or unhappiness, however, is derived from within, end quote. Now, hold on a second, Dr. Strauss. You're telling me that I could look at the world and not want anything to be different? To not just tolerate necessity, but to love it? Because idealism is hypocrisy towards necessity? Well, frankly, that's total nonsense, as Nietzsche explains in his rebuttal. Quote, On the contrary, master, an honest natural scientist, believes that the world conforms unconditionally to laws without, however, asserting anything as the ethical and intellectual value of these laws. He would regard any such assertions as the extreme anthropomorphism of a reason that has overstepped the bounds of the permitted. Strauss assumes without question that all events possess the highest intellectual value, and are thus absolutely rational and purposeful, and then that they contain a revelation of eternal goodness in itself, end quote. Nietzsche also condemns Strauss for his, quote, shameless Philistine optimism, shameless Philistine optimism, and he reminds him that such an affirmative vision of life is, quote, a bitter mockery of the nameless sufferings of mankind. Uh, he adds that this serves only as a, quote, inordinately stupid ease and contentment doctrine for the benefit of the ego, end quote. Ooh, harsh words. There's another part of the book where Strauss says that there's beauty in the process of striving, action, and investigation of truth, that we should embrace that. And Nietzsche's like, nah-uh. And there's a lot more to cover, not least Nietzsche's comments on Darwin. But suffice to say, it is a profoundly unfair and unnecessarily hostile attack on someone who he was deeply indebted to throughout his career, though it might be that he attacked him precisely to diminish the sense of indebtedness he had. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, Andre, you're undermining Nietzsche by picking him apart just because you feel indebted to him. Well, frankly, that's ridiculous. I'm a self-made aristocratic genius, and I owe nothing to anyone. Moving on, it seems that Nietzsche had something of a guilty conscience when it came to this attack. Strauss died a little while after the publication of this hit piece, prompting Nietzsche to write, quote, I very much hope that I did not sadden his last months and that he died without knowing anything about me. It's rather on my mind, end quote. Nietzsche would also agree that he has a tendency to be what the French call Un asshole. Explaining his reputation at university, he wrote that, quote, I am often unhappy and too moody and like being a thorn in the flesh, not only to myself, but to others, end quote. A man after my own heart. His bestie Paul Doyson agreed, saying that Nietzsche had, quote, a tendency to play the pedagogue, constantly correcting me and sometimes really to torture me, end quote. Well, in the spirit of Christmas, let's be more generous and constructive and return to the old man's challenge of putting Christ back in Christmas, but with a little bit of freedom of being unattached to any particular doctrine or idea. One thing that caught my eye in Strauss's book on Jesus is the story of Christ's birth in the Proto-Evangelium Jacobi, or in more common parlance, the Gospel of James. 
which has interesting details regarding Mary's life and pregnancy, something I think would help add a little bit of spice to the religious symbols of the holiday season. In this gospel, Mary is born miraculously after her parents desperately prayed for a child. She's born after seven months, at which point they decide that Mary's life will be completely devoted to God. So they send her to the Temple of Jerusalem, where angels will feed her every day. My favorite part of this story is Mary's arrival at the temple at the tender age of three, where she, quote, danced on her feet and the entire house of Israel loved her, end quote. I declare that this must become a central icon of the holiday season, dancing toddler Mary with a giant crowd of people egging her on. I also think that encouraging dancing among toddlers in church would be a surreptitiously Zarathustran improvement that would bring much mirth. Now, you might be thinking this is some kooky, obscure, apocryphal stuff, but even though this isn't in the New Testament, there is a liturgical feast on November 21st called the Presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, celebrated by Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches, which commemorates this scene of Mary being consecrated to the temple. It's received attention from artistic masters in the Renaissance, there's a nice painting by Titian of Mary's arrival at the temple, but it doesn't capture that scene of joy and playfulness. And Mary looks to be quite a bit older, and her body language is quite serious, if not rigid. I mean, I don't know if you've seen a toddler joyfully dancing, but I can tell you that isn't it. Now, that sense of heaviness, that spirit of gravity, plagues the representation of the scene throughout history, and I challenge artists to do better. The Gospel of James is also interesting because of the more realistic reaction from Joseph when he finds out that Mary's pregnant. Quote, striking his face, he cast himself to the ground on sackcloth, weeping bitterly, end quote. This would be an interesting and more somber contrast to the dancing toddler, even though it is a case of dramatic irony. Also, instead of a manger, Joseph and Mary enter a cave while on their way to Bethlehem, and Joseph looks for a midwife, and once he finds one, they head back to the cave, and they see this dark cloud hovering over it. And the midwife declares that this day is a miracle as salvation has finally come to Israel. And suddenly the cloud disappears, and a flash of light blinds everyone in the cave. And this powerful light fades after a little while, and boom, the infant Christ appears. But here comes my, my second favorite part of this gospel. You see, this gospel insists on the idea that Mary was a virgin both before and after the birth of Christ. And Salome is informed that a virgin has given birth, and like doubting Thomas, she decides that feeling is believing. Quote, As the Lord my God lives, if I do not insert my finger and examine her condition, I will not believe that the virgin has given birth. End quote. All right, so she heads over to the cave, and the midwife tells Mary to brace herself. But as Salome is fiddling around to check Mary's birthing organ, God decides that enough is enough and blasts Salome with some painful punishment, making her cry out, Woe to me for my sin and faithlessness, for I have put the living God to the test. And see, my hand is burning, falling away from me. Well, after pleading with God, an angel tells her that she will be forgiven if she picks up Christ with a hand that isn't disintegrating. So she lifts him up and says, I will worship him, for he has been born 
as a great king to Israel. Now, I hope that this will become a key scene in our newly invigorated Christmas, illustrated by the best masters of the 21st century, because it contains an important lesson. Don't finger the mother of God. Merry Christmas! Vivian Magdalene, Eternal Recurrence versus Resurrection. The winter solstice is the longest night of the year. It is a cardinal day on the wheel of the year, along with the summer solstice and the spring and fall equinoxes. The sun has been in a period of descent since the summer solstice, as each day is shorter than the one before. At the winter solstice, the sun is in the deepest phase of this descent, and its undergoing ends once more. The German verb untergehen describes the setting of the sun, as in die Sonne geht unter, as well as a sinking or a going down that connotes the destruction of the person or thing that has gone under. If a ship sinks or an empire falls, for example, sie gehen unter. We could draw an analogy between the summer solstice and the prologue of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and the winter solstice and the chapter in that novel entitled The Convalescent. Let's begin with the summer solstice, for thus also begins Zarathustra's going under. As the novel opens in the prologue, we meet Zarathustra at the mouth of his cave in the mountains where he has been alone with his animals and the sun for ten years. Zarathustra has taken, for these ten years, the overflow of the sun. He is full of light, like the day at the summer solstice. He is overflowing and eager to give it away. I need hands outstretched to take it, he says. Therefore must I descend into the deep, as you do in the evening when you go behind the sea, and give light also to the underworld, you exuberant star. Like you must I go under, as men say, to whom I shall descend. Zarathustra wills his own going under. He wants to go under. Zarathustra's first interaction with the human realm includes his benediction to those who go under. For Zarathustra is the one who also wills man's going under. Quote, what is great in man is that he is a bridge and not a goal. What is lovable in man is that he is an overgoing and a downgoing. I love those who know not how to live except as downgoers, for they are the overgoers. End quote. Among many other examples, Zarathustra proclaims his love for those who do not first seek a reason beyond the stars for going down and being sacrifices, but sacrifice themselves to the earth, that the earth of the overman may hereafter arrive. Zarathustra loves man to death. Zarathustra is the one who wants the overman. He wills the overman. Quote, I teach you the overman. Man is something that must be overcome. What have you done to overcome man? End quote. A penetrating question during this darkest day of the year. What have you done to overcome man? After his adventures and misadventures among humans, Zarathustra returns again to his cave. In the section entitled On Old and New Tablets, Zarathustra speaks of going under once again as both a return to humans and as his own death. Quote, For once more will I go unto men. Amongst them will my sun set, 
In dying, will I give my choicest gift, like the sun will also Zarathustra go down. End quote. Let's imagine now the convalescent as Zarathustra's winter solstice. In this chapter, Zarathustra faces his own abyss or underworld, just as the sun faces the deepest darkness of its going under on the day of the solstice. Zarathustra's abyss is a thought. He jumps up from asleep and demands that this abysmal thought wake up as well. Quote, Zarathustra calls you. Zarathustra, the godless, I, Zarathustra, the advocate of living, the advocate of suffering, the advocate of the circuit, you do I call my most abysmal thought. I hear thee, mine abyss speaks, my lowest depth have I turned over into the light. Joy to me, come hither, give me your hand. Disgust, 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 alas, to me. End quote. After this summoning, Zarathustra falls over as one dead and remains long as one dead. For seven days, while his eagle and his serpent watch over him and bring him gifts, including two dead lambs, which the eagle had with difficulty carried off from their shepherds. When he comes to, Zarathustra explains to his animals what exactly was that abysmal thought. Quote, and how that monster crept into my throat and choked me, but I bit off its head and spat it away from me. The great disgust at man, it strangled me and had crept into my throat. A long twilight limped on before me. Eternally, he returns, the man of whom you are weary, the small man. So yawned my sadness and dragged its foot and could not sleep. Ah, man returns eternally. The small man returns eternally, end quote. This monster that crept into his throat refers, refers to an earlier episode in which he happened upon a shepherd into whose throat a black serpent had crawled and bit fast. When the shepherd and Zarathustra seems to here identify himself with this one, bites off and spews forth the head of the serpent, he is transfigured. He becomes something that is no longer man, a transfigured being a light-surrounded being. The shepherd laughs. Never on earth laughed a man as he laughed. Here man transfigures into something other than man. This reminisces in some ways the transfiguration of the Christ on the Mount of Olives. The shepherd too, one imagines, refers at least to a similar archetype as the one we know as the Christ. You could argue that the facts don't seem very different between these cases. The transfiguration of the Christ on the Mount of Olives, the body of the believer in the resurrection, or the transfiguration of the shepherd or of Zarathustra after conquering this abyss. Does man's going under imply a resurrection of man? The one who wills resurrection, at least in its Christian sense, will interpret all of these stories and images similarly. This one will hear the breathless promise that he, individually and personally, shall conquer death. This one is impudent and believes in his own personal immortality. He sees references to this fact across the corpus of human myth and knowledge. The sun resurrects, the Christ resurrects, Dionysus resurrects, even man resurrects in the form of the overman. He sees in each of these images something individual and something essential. The sun, for example, represents to him his soul, his ego, 
the spark of life that he is in truth his being his very own unconquerable essence but who is this one that wills his own personal resurrection how does he relate for example to the body in which he currently lives how does he relate to the conditions that generated that body well he doesn't like his body perhaps he despises it he feels uncomfortable sickly degenerate impoverished wanting sinful deceitful illusory resentful shameful and guilty he needs to believe that his essence is uncorrupted by the conditions of his corrupted body and that his essence soul ego personality what have you will realize its full power and dignity when external conditions are easier more pleasant more surrendered to his will when heaven is instituted on earth or when his body is raised and transfigured into something immortal and incorruptible or when the human utopia manifests maybe just when the winter ends or perhaps when he takes the form of the overman as much as he despises his body and the world which conditions that body as much as he negates his life he also negates his own death he can affirm neither because he can affirm nothing unless it is a fiction. He affirms his fictitious essence, his soul, his ego, his image, his consciousness. This one who craves resurrection acts under compulsion. He reacts. He preserves himself as one who is compelled as a slave, even though he despises both himself and the world. The one who wills the resurrection resents his life. He resents himself his betters and his peers he lords over his lessers and calls this pity he resents his living body he resents death he's stuck between a rock and a hard place damned if he does and damned if he does not he wants as an illustration to be put under anesthetic to avoid any potential discomfort of course and to wake up from his surgery a bionic man with all manner of go-go gadget accessories that compel the world to yield to him in the same way that he has lived his life under the force of compulsion. This one who is unable to go under is also the one who is unable to will the overman. He is not the one who Zarathustra loves. He is no bridge to the overman. The one who is able to go under Zarathustra, for example, is also the one who wills the overman. The one who goes under is the one who wants something beyond himself, not from despising himself, but from love of the farthest. He wills the whole. He wills himself as he is, and he wills the overman. He affirms himself even as he destroys himself. He is victorious in his annihilation. Such a man is well disposed to himself. He is well disposed to his faults, his virtues, his inheritance, his fate and whatever else might and does lead to his own downfall. He does not wish for better circumstances. He wishes for the circumstances that he has, exactly as they are, without variation or improvement. He wills the eternal return of the same events. He is so well disposed to himself that he craves nothing more than this ultimate eternal confirmation and seal. The one who goes under is a part of the whole, and so is the overman. Quote, all beings hitherto have created beyond themselves, and yet you want to be the ebb of that great tide and would rather go back to the beast than overcome man? So Zarathustra accuses the people of the marketplace. I'll quibble a bit here. The beings that preceded man did not will man as a function of conscious volition, and what is created from man, through or past man, 
will not be a function of his conscious volition either. Creative will creates, which is as redundant as saying lightning flashes. There is no separation between the doer and the deed. Creation is creating, regardless, I would assume, of any of man's would-rathers. The overman is a part of the whole for this reason. Creating creates beyond human choice and preference. The overman will come. I am confident of this. So what have I done to overcome man? Nothing beyond seeing myself as dispensable and orienting myself toward death seductively. If he comes for me, he comes for me. I resist him not. I release my responsibility for my own durable, let alone eternal, preservation. I also release my responsibility to realize the overman. May he come through me, but as any woman knows, you can't force coming. I overcome my disgust with man, the last man, specifically the small man, because I trust that creating does not depend on my will or my choices, but that it will happen to and through me if I appeal and if I am willing to die. Zarathustra learns overcoming as well. I can't speak to his willingness to be used by creativity creativity as I imagine the masculine orients to creativity differently than the feminine does. But he learns to affirm even that which causes him disgust, disgust, disgust. Thus ends his going under, or so say his animals. His animals spin him a tale of the eternal return, offering an analogy to the wheel of the year one of whose cardinal spokes is this winter solstice. Quote, Behold, we know what you teach, that all things eternally return and ourselves with them, and that we have already existed times without number and all things with us. You teach that there is a great year of becoming, a prodigy of a great year. It must, like a sand glass, ever turn up anew that it may anew run down and run out, so that in all those years so that all those years are like one another in the greatest and also in the smallest, so that we ourselves in every great year are like ourselves in the greatest and also in the smallest. And if thou would die now, O Zarathustra, behold, we know also how you would speak to yourself, but your animals beseech you not to die yet. You would speak, and without trembling, buoyant rather with bliss, for a great weight and worry would be taken from you, you patient one, now do I die and disappear, you would say, and in a moment I am nothing. Souls are as mortal as bodies. But the plexus of causes returns in which I am intertwined. It will again create me. I myself pertain to the causes of the eternal return. I come again with this sun, with this earth, with this eagle, with this serpent, not to a new life or a better life or a similar life. I come again eternally to this identical and self-same life in its greatest and in its smallest, to teach again the return of all things, to speak again the word of the great noontide of earth and man, to announce again to man the overman. I have spoken my word. I break down by my word. So wills my eternal fate. As announcer do I go under. The hour has now come for the great undergoer to bless himself. Thus ends Zarathustra's downgoing. End quote. Zarathustra calls his animals pranksters, buffoons, and barrel organs in this section, which makes me wonder if he agrees with the analogy of the wheel of the year and the eternal return. 
It seems to me that Zarathustra delights in his animals, even if perhaps they don't exactly understand who he is. But he doesn't explicitly agree to their analogy or to their assessment with the end of his undergoing. And is this Zarathustra's winter solstice? Perhaps. A more penetrating question might be, what is the quality of my interpretation in drawing this analogy? What is the value of seeing Zarathustra's solar experience as analogous to the period between the summer and winter solstices? That it is a pagan concept does not exempt it from Christian qualities, particularly if one interprets the wheel of the year as some kind of promise or indication towards personal human immortality. Nietzsche finds Christian elements even in the pre-Christian pagan cults who teach personal immortality to their initiates. In section 58 of The Antichrist, Nietzsche says, quote, Epicurus made war upon not paganism, but, quote, Christianity, which is to say the corruption of souls by means of the concepts of guilt, punishment, and immortality. He combated the subterranean cults, the whole of latent Christianity, to deny immortality was already a form of genuine salvation, end quote. The idea of personal immortality is an inherently Christian idea, even when it arises in, quote, pagan cults. It is possible, therefore, that this pagan concept of the wheel of the year is inherently Christian or Christianizable. To relate the eternal return to the wheel of the year might cause one to misunderstand the eternal return as some mechanism by which a body experiences personal immortality via resurrection. The sun goes under, starting with the summer solstice, and resurrects on the winter solstice, this may be exactly why we celebrate the birth of the Christ at the winter solstice, in fact, because a Christian mind saw a relationship between the two things and imputed Christ onto the solstice. A Christian mind best and most easily understands Christian concepts and will impute such concepts, like the resurrection, onto any suitable substrate. Most of us have deeply Christianized or perhaps inherently Christian minds, whether we are religiously Christian or not. A Dionysian paganism as a counterexample does not interpret eternal life as a personal phenomenon. For the initiate into the Dionysian mysteries, quote, eternal life, the eternal recurrence of life, the future and the future promised and hallowed in the past, the triumphant yes to life despite death and change, real life conceived as the collective prolongation of life through procreation, through the mysteries of sexuality, End quote. An individual dies that the next generation may live. Man dies that the overman may live. Zarathustra loves those men who sacrifice themselves to the overman, not to their own personal human immortality, but to their love of the future. The eternal return differs in quality with the idea of the resurrection, even though the facts can be interpreted similarly. The eternal return differs from the resurrection rather because the feelings that those facts serve to convey differ. The eternal return conveys a feeling of affirmation. The resurrection conveys a feeling of negation. The resurrection negates the world as it is, life as it is, and in so doing, the resurrection negates both man and the overman. The resurrection is an attitude of negation towards the whole, the world, coupled with an unwillingness to go under oneself, an unwillingness to die and to give a gift. The resurrection negates life to affirm a fiction. In announcing the eternal returns, Zarathustra announces a new way of feeling. 
the creative desire of solar love. The man who affirms the eternal recurrence of the same events affirms both himself and his life, including all of the conditions of that life, however small or disgusting those conditions may be. Quote, with a feeling of cheerful and confident fatalism, he believes that only individual things are bad, and that as a whole, the universe justifies and affirms itself. He no longer denies. End quote. He is as radiant as the sun. He gives value to life like the sun gives light, gold, and love to the world. He wills it not once, but eternally. Not better, but exactly as it is. He wills his own birth, and his own death, not once, but an infinite number of times again. The Rebirth of Europe It's always said, whenever someone tells the story of the Renaissance, that the word Renaissance means renaissance. Something nascent is something emerging into being, and so to be renascent is to be reborn. The most powerful association we have with this French term, Renaissance, is the period of Europe beginning around the 15th century and proceeding through most of the 16th. This is a new beginning for Europe. But eras do not have neat boundary lines. Eras are one of those conceptual categories for which we have the least illusions concerning our own subjectivity. We know there is an arbitrariness to demarcating such lines. Nevertheless, something is made very clear when we look on what is on either side of this very blurry line of a century or two, that on one side stands the Middle Ages, and on the other side stands the Enlightenment. And this makes the Renaissance a remarkable thing, more remarkable than is often recognized, because when we examine the ways of living and governing, the moral valuations, the religious mood, the social mindset that's typical of the Middle Ages, it could not be farther from that which is associated with the Enlightenment. These two periods seem to have almost an opposite mood, an opposite feeling to them. The vibrancy of the Enlightenment contrasted with the pallor of the medieval, the dreams, the hopes, the idealism of the Enlightenment, versus the orthodoxy of the medieval, the belief that truth had already been found, that man in his sinfulness has nothing better on this earth to pursue, the celebration of reason that finds voice in Enlightenment Europe, called the Age of Reason, versus the proud unreason of the Middle Ages, the Age of Faith. Europe of the late medieval period is a place of poverty compared to the rest of the world. It's a civilization on a little peninsula that faced extinction many times and barely held on by a thread. It was dominated by the feudal system in which most people were bondsmen, serfs confined to the lands of a given lord. It's a period characterized by considerable violence, not just between states, but between individuals, as crime was rampant and the punishments for crime severe because catching criminals was so difficult. And ultimately, its thought was dominated by rigidity, either in the Aristotelian scholasticism found in its universities, or in the superstitions and zealous faith of the average churchgoer. This is a time where there was no Christianity in Europe outside of the Catholic Church, and whenever it appeared, it was called heresy, and punished with excommunication, torture, and death. But Enlightenment Europe 
is the Europe that grows through colonial ambitions to become the richest civilization in history. And following the Enlightenment and its correspondent scientific revolutions, European militaries become the most powerful on the face of the globe. Its people are no longer defined by these unchangeable social relationships, but they begin to pursue the values of freedom and self-determination. And what was once heresy becomes Protestantism, the exit of the faithful from pre-existent scriptural authority, the founding of thousands upon thousands of sects, each with their own individual interpretations, and of course, the industrial revolution that comes out of this, perhaps the single most transformative event in the history of the world. It's almost impossible for us to imagine the people of the Middle Ages transforming the world through the Industrial Revolution. It is easy for us to see ourselves today as children of the Enlightenment, with our forms of individual artistic expression, distributed knowledge and distributed political rights, variegated religious and philosophical beliefs. But it's difficult to see our resemblance to those Europeans of the Middle Ages, who came before the Enlightenment. And yet all that stands between these two ages is that blurry line called the Renaissance. Usually the story of the Renaissance is centered on the Italian peninsula. The Medici family, at that time the most powerful dynasty in Italy, played a huge role in bringing forth the Renaissance as patrons of the arts and sciences during this period. Indeed, the Italian culture rediscovered the art and ideas of classical antiquity as it had not done since the days when Italy was ruled by Rome. And this fueled the movement of humanism, which first comes fully into being in Italy. But Italy did not exist in a vacuum. The Renaissance was an event that did not just occur in the Italian peninsula, but represents a shift in the mindset of all Europe. Neither its causes nor its effects can be solely located in Italy. All of Europe, in fact, experienced a Renaissance, but if this is a rebirth, doesn't that mean that something had to die? I think it is customary to assume that what died was classical antiquity, all those centuries before, when the Western Roman Empire fell. The popular myth is that this event corresponds with the destruction of the Library of Alexandria, a claim which is almost certainly false, but nevertheless very useful for revealing the popular oversimplification in thought that when Rome fell, Europe immediately went from this age of art and science and culture into illiterate barbaric darkness, and that it took over a thousand years before Europe could rediscover antiquity a second time, begin to pick up where they left off, and that that's what the Renaissance is. It's not as if the medieval scholars hadn't thoroughly familiarized themselves with Aristotle, for one, and that was centuries before the Renaissance. But nevertheless, it is true. Overall rates of literacy declined. Without centralized uh, imperial power, Europe became a chaotic place. And what came in to restore order, to the degree that it was restored, was the church. So there's good reason for calling this period the Dark Ages. But I take issue with this interpretation of the Renaissance because the truth is, European civilization had already reconstituted itself at least once. Scholars now refer to this as the Carolingian Renaissance. That's the period initiated by Charlemagne, when the Franks created a powerful empire. Charlemagne also acted as a patron of the arts and sciences during his reign. The real meaning of the Renaissance of the 15th century, in my view, is much simpler. It's so simple that you may find it a bit anticlimactic. Europe 
after the period of Rome had already undergone this rebirth under Charlemagne, and what we think of as medieval Europe, the High Middle Ages, occurs in this period. You could, of course, argue that it had undergone multiple such rebirths, but in the 14th century, that period immediately before the Renaissance began, the Italian Renaissance that we all know and love, that iteration of Europe, medieval Europe, was finally at the end of its life. That what died was, simply put, medieval Europe itself. And this death is not a figure of speech. If we were to ask why a rebirth was necessary, we need only look to the social and political situation at the time. And to do this, we're going to look at the country whose language gives us the term Renaissance. What was the state of France at the end of the Middle Ages? And how was it that medieval France died along with the rest of Europe? And how could it be reborn? France in the 13th century was at the height of its glory. When Guy de Bazoquet, a historian from Champagne, visited the city of Paris during the reign of Philip Augustus II, who had ruled from 1180 to 1223, he wrote, I am in Paris, in the royal city where abundance of natural wealth not only holds for those who live there, but also attracts those from afar. Just as the moon outshines the stars in brilliance, so does the city the seat of monarchy, lift her head above the rest. End quote. Over the course of the 13th century, France tripled its territory. They outrivaled their long-standing foes, the English, and Paris was the largest city in Latin Christian Europe, with a population of a quarter million. This was to be the peak of French culture during the era of the Middle Ages, because, as the French would soon discover, it was all downhill from here. During this time of abundance, the population had grown massively. But this presents something of a problem in the context of an agrarian populace, in which 90% of people live as farmers. The ability to make a living was destined to become strained, given that there is a limited number of plots of land that can be farmed. Historians have studied the cost of commodities in medieval Europe and noted that the main staple of the diet, wheat, increased in price by more than double from the year 1200 to the year 1300. A similar price increase occurred in England and Italy, and it should be said that many of these trends occurring in France also unfolded in other countries. At the beginning of the 13th century, an acre of land in Normandy cost two livres, and by the end of the century, in the year 1300, it cost 20 livres. You don't have to know anything about the French currency of the time to understand this is a tenfold increase in the price of land. A medieval analyst, Johannes de Trocolo, wrote, quote, In the year of our Lord, 1315, apart from the other hardships with which England was afflicted, hunger grew in the land. Meat and eggs began to run out. Capons and fowl could hardly be found. Animals died of pest. Swine could not be fed because of the excessive price of fodder. A quarter of wheat or beans or peas sold for 20 shillings. The land was so oppressed with want that when the king came to St. Albans on the feast of St. Lawrence, it was hardly possible to find bread on sale to supply his immediate household. End quote. So the portrait we have in the 1200s is abundance and wealth, and in the 1300s it is want, starvation. 
What these European countries in the Middle Ages were experiencing as a well-known feature of agrarian societies, noted famously or infamously by Thomas Malthus, that societies become victims of their own success, insofar as increase in prosperity increases population, which then destroys prosperity, which leads to uprisings, crime, civil wars, and thus decreased population. During this period of popular immiseration, the falling price of labor allows the rich, in this case the feudal lords, to squeeze the laborers for more and enrich themselves, leading to a swelling of the elite. But even this eventually causes problems for the aristocracy because they too find there's not enough to go around. So due to the natural cyclical trends, peasants in the beginning of the 1300s, who were barely making enough not to starve, found that with a series of bad harvest years, they often had no choice but to sell their land or starve to death. Or sometimes the only option was starve to death. This popular immiseration leads to internal strife. Some of the barons revolted in 1314. Fresh wars broke out with the English beginning around the late 1330s. This is the beginning of the Hundred Years' War, which is a century of on-and-off conflict between the French and the British. Especially for the first half of the conflict, the French were handed humiliating defeats. Then, in the 1340s, the Black Death arrives. The plague kills, in some places, up to a third of the total population of Europe. The plague disrupted the collection of taxes, and the authority of the crown began to fail in France. Revolutions broke out, including in the city of Paris in 1356. Civil wars would recur again and again, with another peak of hostilities occurring in the 1410s. There was a complete collapse of law and order in the countryside. Unwanted infants were smothered or abandoned, because the cost of feeding another mouth simply couldn't be borne by the family. People began having less children in general, and marrying later. Peasants abandoned their lands and the bonds their lords claimed over them because they were tired of living in war-torn hellholes. Norman Bishop Thomas Basin described northwest France in the year 1420, quote, A state of devastation, such that from the Loire to the Seine, and from there to the Somme, the peasants have been killed or run off. Almost all fields were left for a number of years, not only uncultivated, but without people. All that could be cultivated at that time in the region was only around and inside towns or castles, close enough so that, from the top of the tower or watchtower, the eye of the lookout could perceive the attacking brigands. Then, with the sound of a bell or horn or some other instrument, he gave all those working in the fields or vineyards the signal to withdraw to the fortified place. End quote. When I read accounts such as this one, I can't help but entertain the thought that such a scene sounds as though it comes straight out of a post-apocalyptic novel or film. Isn't it like a scene out of Mad Max or Dawn of the Dead? I would guess that there's some subconscious inspiration in our deep history when we write such a post-apocalyptic stories because we have, as a society, seen the apocalypse many times before. The end of the social order due to war, plague, man turning on his fellow man and starvation and desperation. And then following from this, just total atomization of society and collapse of any central authority. Individuals have to gather in a fortified location, beyond which the countryside simply represents anarchy, right? A return to the state of nature. Like human beings clustered in a bunker, the survivors are able to grow crops and attempt to survive within a limited range, quick to hurry inside, 
as soon as any interloper appears, because strange human beings are no longer, you know, an interesting traveler who nevertheless is just another brother in Christ. No, a strange person is a threat. This level of depopulation is another element that must have seemed apocalyptic to the people living through it. The rural population in the Paris region decreased fourfold. At the outset of the crisis of the 14th century, there had been so much overpopulation that land was in short supply, but now that the land was plentifully available, it could not be safely cultivated. The problem of roving bandits and armies was omnipresent in French life. During his travels through 15th century France, Philippe de la Bossière wrote, quote, This land of Saint-Onge, except for the towns and fortresses, was deserted and uninhabited. Where there had once been fine manners, domains, and heritages, towering bushes grew. End quote. During this time, there was a peculiar religious movement that depictions of the Middle Ages often focus on, but which really only characterizes this final century of the Middle Ages, the death throes of the Middle Ages, so to speak. And this is the fascination with the figure of the Grim Reaper, who begins to appear as a leitmotif in late medieval art, especially in France. The Dance Macabre, a new type of processional play, became one of the most popular forms of entertainment. At the village pageants, people would dress up as corpses from all walks of life, laborer, emperor, child, old man, knight, merchant, and so on and so forth, and they would all march off ceremonially into the grave. In the 1420s, the Holy Innocent Cemetery, the largest cemetery in all of Paris, unveiled a mural depicting the Dance Macabre. In contrast to Renaissance art, in this period we find the prevalence of the memento mori, the reminder that you will die, as a pervasive aesthetic theme. And so we often think when we conceptualize the Middle Ages of the flagellants, the religious ascetics who beat and punish themselves. We think of the dour grave priests who tell us this world is nothing but plague and poverty and death. But are these figures really representatives of the Middle Ages at its height, at its peak? Or are they the kinds of figures who arise when a society is dying? This is what I mean when I say that the societies of Europe that characterized the Middle Ages quite literally died insofar as they all went through this phase of disintegration during the 14th and 15th centuries. A third of the population dies during the Black Death. More die during the Great Famine. And what followed are civil wars and a complete breakdown of the social order. And the people who lived through this lived through what was, for all intents and purposes, an apocalypse. Everything that they had known as normal uh, more or less disappeared or was thrown into upheaval. At the end of this time of chaos, we find one of the first figures of the Renaissance. In the 1420s, Charles VII became king of France, but his inheritance of that title was not without qualifications. For one, his father, Charles VI, had been compelled, after losing to Henry V in battle, into signing a treaty which had disinherited Charles VII, his son, and instead given the inheritance of the French crown and its lands to the British. Of course, Charles VII did not accept this, but as king of France, he could not actually go to the city where the French kings were crowned, Rheim, for his coronation. Uh, the reason is because Rheim was controlled by the British. In fact, the entire northern third or so of France was in British hands, including Paris. Charles was reduced to holding court in a provincial city. 
Meanwhile, the British had gained allies of their own in France, as the populace turned to whoever could bring order, and the British army and their French allies had come to Orléans and laid siege to the city. It was thought on both sides that if Orléans fell, the British would be able to sweep into the rest of France and take it for the British Empire. The figure that I mentioned, one of the first to summon the spirit of the Renaissance, we might say, is not Charles VII. The one I'm thinking of is named Joan of Arc, the first woman ever to be knighted in medieval France. Joan was followed by visions of St. Michael her entire life that told her that she would be the one to deliver France from its woes. This belief of hers was bolstered by a popular prophecy at that time that a virgin would arrive to save the French people. Joan approached the military commanders in her region multiple times, demanding an audience with Charles VII. They refused her, but Joan became a religious phenomenon in the region, and the intensity of her faith and her confidence in her destiny seemed to have this strange charismatic effect on those people who spoke with her. As the military situation worsened, eventually they allowed this young woman to meet with the king. When she met Charles, she told him that she had been sent to him with a quest of breaking the siege of Orléans and liberating Rheims for the king so that he could be properly crowned. Whatever it was about Joan, Charles believed her. A council of theologians examined her and declared her a pious Catholic. She was verified as a virgin to make sure she fit the criteria of the prophecy. After this, Charles VII ordered that she be fitted with plate armor, and she was given a mount and a sword. Joan's personality, once again, had this mysterious effect when she reached Orléans. Morale soared, and this war between the English and French, that had raged for a hundred years, ceased to be a war of succession, but wherein both sides were pressing their rights to the French crown. It ceased to be a cynical struggle over land by desperate nations enduring plague and famine. Joan of Arc transformed the Hundred Years' War into a religious war, and in 1429 she led the French to victory at Orléans. She commanded soldiers in many campaigns and became a hero to the French people. The French allies of the English eventually captured Joan and gave her to the English, and in a kangaroo court she was convicted of heresy and was burnt at the stake. While Joan had taken a secular war and given it a religious dimension, the English took a religious crime and used it for cynical political purposes. Even at the time, those within the church criticized the charge of heresy and saw the execution of Joan for what it was. But Charles VII made no effort to save her from this fate, assuming he even could have. So why do I say that Joan of Arc is a figure who summons the Renaissance? Because she is not quite medieval and not quite modern. She does not represent a complete departure from the religious feeling or the way of life familiar to the Middle Ages, but she is a step into the project of the Enlightenment. Some 60 years before Martin Luther, there appears this woman who says, I am accountable only to God, not to you men of the church who have taken its doctrines and its institution and misused it for your own corrupt purposes. That was one of the things they executed her for, by the way, failing to recognize the earthly authority of the church and daring to say that she leaned on the direct authority of God and a personal relationship with God. This is a radical proto-Protestant heresy from one perspective. And Joan, as an individual, is allowed to do things that no one of her social status or gender had been allowed to do, to become a knight, lead troops in battle, 
to dress and live as a man. Joan's individuality took precedence over her position in the social order, something which is quite a strange idea in medieval times. But this is achieved not by a rejection of the Christian ethos, which premised the European medieval culture, but as its sublation. Today, the idea that an individual could have a personal relationship with God is not radical. Even Catholics today speak in this language. It's not strange for us to think that an individual's unique capacities or desires ought to be what guides their course in life, rather than a predetermined lot handed to them by birth. And it's not strange to us to see women as leaders or soldiers. But in order for Joan of Arc to exist, the population had to be open to those possibilities. Why were the French open to the possibility of Joan of Arc? The short answer is because the old society that they had lived in, the France that peaked in the 1200s, had fallen. The social norms that had long been seen as their protection, as the connective tissue, the moral fabric of society, that was all torn to pieces. After an era of destruction, a thousand new possibilities were open. They were willing to think about faith, about piety in a different way. They were desperate for salvation and found the image of the Savior where before they would have thought only the insane would have looked in a 17-year-old girl. And ultimately, as a symbol to galvanize the French people and unite them, she was successful. 20 years or so after her death, France would drive out the British once and for all. It was not until 1453, but the French did eventually recapture Bordeaux, the last holdout, and France became whole again. The state finances and steady streams of taxation were reestablished, and order returned to the countryside. But something else also happens in that same year, 1453, on the opposite side of Europe. 1453 is the year that Rome fell. Not the Western Roman Empire, that collapsed in late antiquity, but Constantinople. 1453 was the end of the Byzantine Empire, and during the 1400s, what we today call Byzantium was called by the people who lived there, Romania, the land of the Romans. This is not the area of land called Romania that exists today, but it's rather in modern-day Greece and Turkey. The person responsible for bringing down the Eastern Romans is Sultan Mehmet II, who captured the city after a 53-day siege and then relocated the capital of the Ottoman Empire to Constantinople. For centuries, the Eastern Roman city of Constantinople had been the bulwark stopping the expansion of Muslim or Turkic armies from advancing into Europe. The downfall of Constantinople comes at the end of a long decline in the power of the Byzantines, and we could see the destruction of their empire as another apocalyptic event for the people who live there. We tend to focus on Latin Christianity when uh, trying to understand European history, but the Eastern Church and the Eastern Empire of Byzantium is in some sense the definitive medieval political entity in Christian Europe. From the fall of Western Rome until this very moment in 1453, when the Middle Ages begins to give way to the Renaissance, Constantinople has stood that entire time. It's the linchpin of virtually all the Crusades, and its importance doesn't even end with the conquest of the Ottomans, but instead, Mehmet II adds to his list of titles Kaiseri Rum, which means Caesar of Rome, which indicates that Mehmet saw the position of ruler of Rome as a prestigious title. But 
Of course, the fall of Constantinople has dire consequences for the rest of Europe. To understand those consequences, we'll now finally consider the Italian peninsula. As in France, the Italian peninsula had seen prosperity in the 13th century, then a rapid and horrific collapse in the 14th. The plague had ravaged Italy as viciously as any European state, as the Black Death had arrived in Europe via the port cities in Italy. Like France, Italy emerged from the 1300s with a decimated population, but began to return to stability in the 1400s. And Italy led the way in terms of the social trends that would define the new socio-economic reality of Europe. Following the abyss of the 14th century, more and more people had been pushed into the cities, and the class that benefited most greatly was an emerging middle class. The most powerful among the merchants would become a new estate in society. What had formerly brought wealth to Italy, however, and to its port cities, was trade from the east. Luxury goods, silk, spices, and so on. Their wealth was such that Venice was propelled into a veritable golden age at the start of the 15th century. Venice and Genoa were bastions of culture and wealth, and northern Italy had become the most urbanized population in all of Europe. Whereas most European states had a population that was about 90% rural, the Italian states were only about two-thirds rural. The rest lived in cities. The artistic output that launches the Renaissance happens in Italy. Raphael, Botticelli, Da Vinci, and Michelangelo all hail from this period. These Renaissance men represent a new type of human being, a person educated not in a single discipline, bonded to one task, which was handed down to him by his forefathers. But rather, these men are artists, architects, poets, writers, scientists. It's here that we get the Mona Lisa, the Vitruvian Man, the Sistine Chapel. There are innumerable factors that launch this artistic revolution. But if we consider what it is that these artists depict, for the first time, the human form is rendered as realistically as possible, the individual human face became the object of the artist's focus, rather than the portraits of throngs of people in the Middle Ages who are so many carbon copies, with no distinction between them. It's like a, there's often these depictions in the Middle Ages where you can identify types of people, but not so much individual people. It's like, oh, it's a throng of peasants. Oh, look, it's a procession of knights. Or these are two kings, but they're identified by their social class, by how they appear, how they dress. Um, not as individual distinct humans. So in the Italian Renaissance, we have humanism. And what launches this movement is the rediscovery of the styles of antiquity. These ideas from classical antiquity are a contact between the medieval mind with the mind of the Greek or Roman pagan. The Greek philosophers had brought forth this project of materialist philosophy. In their religious beliefs, the Greeks honor many gods, they celebrate their great heroes of their ancestry as these semi-divine beings. Their gods resemble humanity, and their art and sculpture celebrates the human body. This is, many believe, why the artistic shift happens, in which the focus is no longer on the nondescript mass of humanity, but the individual, and then a corresponding transition to realism that accompanies this. But what was it that launches this new interest in classical antiquity? After all, the medieval morality does not look kindly upon such naked depictions of the human body. Even the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel was criticized at that time by members of the church 
who considered the depiction to be in poor taste. The poet Pietro Aretino wrote to Michelangelo, quote, Is it possible that you, so divine that you do not deign to consort with men, have done such a thing in the highest temple of God, above the first altar of Jesus? Not even in the brothel are there such scenes as yours, end quote. This attitude is the voice of a past age. The human form was not to be regarded as beautiful during the Middle Ages. Uh, after enduring a couple of centuries of plague, war, famine, and death, the religious mindset of the medieval age says the flesh is temporary. It's just a mortal coil. To celebrate its beauty is pride or vanity. So what changed? A huge factor is the flood of refugees from Constantinople. These Greek Christians brought with them, among other things, their manuscripts of ancient Greek texts. They also brought their own versions of the Bible in Greek. They predominantly settled in Italy, which was just on the other side of the Adriatic Sea. Among those works which they reintroduced to the Western canon included the complete works of Plato and countless other ancient authors. In Florence, Neoplatonist schools of philosophy emerge. While it wouldn't be accurate to say that this information had left Europe during the Dark Ages, because Constantinople could be considered to be a part of Europe, or part of the European civilization, but Latin Christianity just hadn't taken care to preserve these writings. And furthermore, the Italian city-states were already the most literate population among all Europeans. Now they had access to all these classics and a Bible, which is not written in Latin, and thus is no longer the preserve of priests and bishops to interpret on behalf of the people. And now they have these ideas like the concept of virtue, virtue in the sense understood by the Greeks and Romans. Machiavelli draws on this concept to great effect. He's another man of the 15th century, and he dares to interpret politics not as a question of divine providence, nor even of rights and sovereignty, but as a true science. To subject our political questions to reason and use empirical observation to guide our approach to politics. But the consequences of the fall of Constantinople uh, do not just have beneficial aspects, they're also quite terrifying for Italy. Now the gateway to the east is controlled by an Islamic sultanate, one which does not necessarily prohibit Europeans from trading with the east, but would regularly stop and subject non-Muslim merchants to onerous taxes. Constantinople had been Genoa's main ally and trading partner in the east, a large reason for their great wealth, but now they're gone. In fact, the entire Mediterranean Sea is no longer safe in the way that it had once been. The Barbary states of northern Africa were known for piracy and abducting hapless vessels. In southern Spain, the Muslims still controlled Granada on the southern coast, although it should be noted that, like everywhere else in Europe, Spain was making progress in reconstituting itself. But the long and short of it was, getting goods from China or India was not as easy as it once was. The tariffs imposed by the Ottomans would add to the list of expenses already facing those involved in mercantile capitalism. And in the decades that followed, the Ottomans didn't stop. Their empire expanded into Greece and further into the Balkans. And so it's not an accident of history that only about 40 years after this, following a number of expeditions in which Spanish ships charted the west coast of Africa, discovered the Azores and other islands, that they began to search for a route to India, not by going east, but by going west. 
And so we might look at Columbus as another such Renaissance figure, a man who summons the Enlightenment. He is an Italian hired by the Spanish to find a new passage to India. Columbus, the explorer and discoverer of the Americas, appears not as this singular, unprecedented phenomenon, but a figure created by the structural forces at work during this age. Like Joan of Arc, he is a figure that in many ways remains within the mindset of the Middle Ages. He is every bit as intolerant, cruel, and brutal in his encounters with the native Arawaks as the men who burn Joan of Arc for heresy. And yet, like Joan, he takes a few further steps into the future, not in spite of who he is, but because of it. Pushed by necessity, Europe was driven to explore, to search out new trade routes, and accordingly, Europe expands the entire world. The discovery of these new continents is so monumental that they were called the New World, peoples which had had no contact with one another for tens of thousands of years suddenly are reunited. When we look to other formative figures who define the Renaissance, Martin Luther is born in 1483. His rebellion against the Catholic Church occurs against the backdrop of a rival canon, the Greek canon, finding its way into Latin civilization. At a time where people are beginning to think that there could be a Christianity that was not owned by the priests, Luther appears as one who would be his own priest. Luther takes it a step further than Joan of Arc, though, and argues that scripture ought to be the sole authority. Of course, we cannot understate the technological advancements and the fact that this happens to occur at a time when Johannes Gutenberg had just fired up the printing press, and now the Bible could be printed and distributed like never before. In France, we have figures such as Michel de Montaigne, the first essayist, who's born in 1533. He is a Renaissance man par excellence, a worldly, well-traveled, well-read man who takes the first step into a modern style of writing. He writes candidly, tells anecdotes, makes arguments without binding himself in the rigid structural forms of medieval writing. His works are laced with quotations from the ancients, and we may wonder which of them would be missing had Constantinople not fallen. By the time Descartes and Bacon arrive at the end of the 16th century, the Enlightenment had begun. Europe had somehow insensibly transformed itself from the society it was during the late Middle Ages and now had become something modern, or at least something resembling the modern. If there's anything to take away from my musings about the rebirth of Europe, it is this. The 14th century was a true apocalypse, and the 15th century was a long reawakening. What Europe was had died, and was reborn as something new. It's an event that does not take place in the individual artistic genius of a Donatello, it's also the circumstance that created Donatello. It's caused by figures like Luther, but also the fact that the ground had already been laid for Luther. What followed in the new civilization that emerged from the ashes was not an uninterrupted peace, but the conflicts that took place in this new era were the arguments of a new way of life, a new system of values. The wars between the armies of Protestants and the armies of the Counter-Reformation, the colonization of the Americas, the scientific revolutions, the Jesuits, the artistic and philosophical movement of humanism, all of this occurs within this new frame of mind. On Christmas Day in 1519, Raphael's paintings depicting Saints Peter and Paul were displayed in the Sistine Chapel. 
These are called Raphael's cartoons, and they are among Raphael's most detailed work. He was highly self-conscious of the fact that this work would be displayed beneath Michelangelo's heralded ceiling. In Raphael's depictions, we find vibrant, three-dimensional humanity, somehow represented in two dimensions. In sharp contrast with those medieval depictions that decidedly remain flat on the page, each captures a scene, a burst of life frozen in the mind of Raphael, and on each face in his portrayal of St. Paul preaching at Athens, we see different lines, a different expression, a different person. This Christmas gift to the faithful preserves something of the spirit of the Middle Ages, it is true, and yet the Middle Ages is dead. They reach their end with the ascension of those cults of death and the dance macabre, the obsession with punishing one's flesh in the face of the horror of the plague and of the civil wars. That was their own form of terminal nihilism as their society went out with a whimper. In the Renaissance, we find something that is not yet articulated, perhaps not even consciously felt, but which is still subterranean. It serves as the basis of the coming enlightenment. It is the basic revaluation that there is something valuable about life. There's something beautiful about the body. There's something unique in the individual, that there is a greatness to individual human talent, and that there is more than one way to the divine, more than one interpretation of the divine, that religion could be something more than a way to an afterlife. And perhaps that even a rural farm girl can lead an army if she lives in the courage of her conviction. Some of the reasons why Nietzsche loved the Renaissance are obvious. The rejuvenation of the classical world, the rejuvenation of the antica morale, the celebration of life and beauty, the explosion of artistic genius, the idea of virtu as a competing formula for life from that of the ascetic life. But there is an element of the Renaissance that Nietzsche finds particularly appealing, the power struggles on the Italian peninsula, Nietzsche would be the first to point out that these Italian city-states hardly lived in peace with one another, and it was during a time of war and suspicion that these great geniuses of the Renaissance lived. Perhaps most importantly, the Catholic Church, this institutional relic of the Middle Ages that was still standing after its death, seemed to have been taken over by the spirit of the Renaissance. Not only does the Catholic Church spend lavishly on these projects of art and architecture, they're less concerned with that gloomy ascetic piety, perhaps less concerned than they ever were. The popes at this time raised armies, assassinated people, sired children, feasted in the Vatican, to quote Nietzsche's words, quote, life sat on the throne, end quote. In contrast, what Nietzsche disliked about this period is represented by Luther and his Protestant Reformation. Nietzsche writes in Will to Power, quote, in the Reformation, we possess a wild and vulgar counterpart to the Italian Renaissance. Everybody his own priest is a mere formula of libertinage, end quote. Nietzsche maintained that the full possibilities for a reborn European civilization were smothered by Luther's Reformation, and the correspondent wars of religion that dominated the European mind in the decades that followed. In spite of this, whatever one might say about Nietzsche, he was a hopeful guy, and his hopes were that one day, Europe would reap the harvest of what had begun during the Renaissance. This type of civilizational death and rebirth has happened many, many times. 
probably more times than are even recorded by our history. It seems that all polities live and flourish during one season, then decline and fall into anarchy in another. That was the great mystery that held the fascination of the cults of pagan antiquity. I bring this insight to mind this holiday season because it is a path to, among other things, gratitude, and also humility and patience, things which many of us wish for as virtues. There's that old story of the king who asked his court magician to provide him with some gift that, when he looked upon it in good times, would make him sad, and when he looked upon it in bad times, would make him happy. The magician provided him with a ring, engraved with the saying, This too shall pass. Maybe this reminder is a bit morbid. Isn't it kind of like the memento mori of those late medieval death cults? Remember that you will die. To this I answer by saying that everything depends on the use one has for such a reminder. My advice would be to look upon the death and rebirth of peoples and nations as a liberatory thought. The wheel of fortune shouldn't be regarded so solemnly and gravely. It keeps spinning. And I doubt that anyone in Europe in the year 1453 thought that the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople was a good thing. And of course they didn't. They had no notion that this event would indirectly lead to the countries of Europe becoming some of the most richest and powerful countries ever to grace the earth. This too shall pass doesn't have to be a devaluation of what is. We've lived through the apocalypse before, and we will almost certainly live through it again. But on the other side, there's always another renaissance. The great mystery of life will go on. Mina Mayasnawan, A Christmas Poem This is called Christmas Poem 2023. Can't see me, be me, only quote myth and flee these drunk death defy happy seconds flip strip stretch beyond hours. Almost immortal this portal seasons in the abysmal dismissal of union's desire. Cold grass blistering stunted scouring stitch the witch their memories itch. Sewn in rip seams fester pester twitch drip rich dream fever and its weaver surreptitiously conspire not merrily but scarily she forever screams quite garishly pain of her guile brings round rings warily for all big and small things coarse cruelty always in style. And in all wars for all time, a shrieking possession, clutching scarlet confession of her dead soldier and child, while always sounds the same, pity covers for blame, smiling contempt, projected alibi for pain, sweep the meat, the heat, the scraps right under the heap, is the game, so if she keeps silence in her tireless, libelous, lionessly leonine violence, she can also deny her name is man began and begins is that she is more clever than him always has always been a snake charmer within and without fiery sword pinning chest burning breath burning doubt crushing form culling dire sewn in pins flowers and briars for seams and strings of fate to wing these beasts of all beasts the most replete of will with hunger which sunders longing creation come complete feet through the fire streak through the mire life sacrificial competition funerary celebration pyre the wicked cruel call deadliest of all hunting habits viper teeth off the leash venom toxins for rabbits 
prophets and all sheep who bleat unthinkable things, like there's no tyrants, whores, and of course no wars in new lands of new kings who sing, lick, spittle, constrict, and contradict riddles, nuts to crack, cut the tail, the neck, the hack. No one has ever been safe in the middle, a target, your forehead, your back, rings the petty sting of neighborly nettles and thistles surround the sound of reptiles chowing down in tanks, the world, God's bank to break, deposit, check, crash, and debit, lazy, go slow, dumb funds, no fun when youth is yours and you hedge it, piled bets on a guess, asleep it's a mess, a flash, a laugh, never mind, ink blot, greasy, hot blast, radioactive rays, waves for dreadful, feckless, reckless, black days, lost, lonesome, nuclear, winter, wholesome, and froze in the maze, amidst yards for graves, in a dream, in a cave, comes a light, wisp, bright, lusty fire, raised, enraged in the berserker malaise, the minotaurs crazed, rapacious, blazed, glaze, as if all to say, come one, come all, to the sad little circus where they stay. God is daft, dumb, young, dead, idle, drunk, and yet so amazed at his blazy, dull system. Its rusty, bent pistons, bloody, broken pinions, repeat, dumb defeat. Its message and missive, same pains, no real aims, inscribed, the mark I've done missed it. From there you don't care, the day is simply grub fare and daycare for human despair. Why begin when forever longs for its stupid and under a herd cursed, soul-gutted, stolen purse known as prayer? No treasure beware, guards Tweedledee and Tweedledum, blind and young in the eyeless cyclops lair. Even in pairs they stink of solitary, scornful, slavish disrepair, the collective perpetual uh-oh, oh no, buyers and sellers be scared of this prettily, glittery, skittery, horribly hearted jewel in its glare, jagged, hostile, fractory, vibrant, myriad, and many-hued, your projection's reflection is bothering you, a mask you can't take off or break off, where do you begin and end with your fake talk, egospastic mammal on camera and pathology zoo with eight billion other fence sleepers like you ready to chew sue screw abuse use and be used yet take no risks anew only better men and manners have the rabble overthrew and thrown up freak anima leak animus pants deep on shallow dance floor chase a man make demands woman silly little wars much of a bore as man and his whore of babylon for her business he's a suit on a slob has been workaholic who's almost always been gone not present in his head he lives the world has dead meat and mummy spider webs to steal and to give leave the women and kids fall apart away and at home because they both know the truth they're bored the union isn't whole playing actors and roles buzzing the parts of drones what kith and what kin what hearth and what home he and she know harmony not comfortable to Together or alone, and nobody nowhere is ever secure here, with or without wife and child and riches is not more clear. For as the wisest speak, mo money, mo problems only comes more the moment you solve one. Her less so with him is more fear. Unlike his dumb loyal dog, a predictable puppy mild, she hides with natural style and unframable, habitable, untamable wilds. Here they seldom meet man and woman too lost invalid god drunk foolish childs bruises from delusions fists contusions from illusions demons ghosts crones gone riled but less is more so let's look at the only score truth is a fight is life and love and nothing is fair in ponderous style hatred and ardor even the best kept solace we crept respite amongst great might means dozing dire through fierce siege war as the bell at Nell's recall, December fell, ball and brawl through November's frigid hell, Mars eternal leers, Mori memento revered, strike, bite, smites any day, so you say, come see and play the fatality, even gods won't survive our reality, so great hospitality, we insist on it, brother and sister, your life, don't miss it, tend your own grains, go your own way, remember and name it well, call it an array of all plays, call it a species, a night, a life, a day, call it swell, or maybe it's hell as you and other people, to the unclean wash hall, spiders and feeble beetles, churches, prisons, and zoos, and steeples clutched with ignorant penal evil. 
With greatest care and pity for every last zero, one and all, Pride's rendezvous for vanity's fair and fall only ever means death is sleeping in the air and the flies on your walls. Right before peace departs your door, a minute, a moment, harpies its demise in haste with or without taste, breaking tables, chairs, and floors, lost in service to the invisible and the gorgeous, their destroyers and their warships, nuclear death, terminal sex in its disguise, your own chorus, desire again the drunk lightning daft mare we worship, eternity the score for thee, always and forevermore and more Violent affairs. Your shadow won't matter, can't hide broken ladders and bunk-busted tables, death deals deadly but fair, where she dances with fable, sword ward and long torn, we moan with the north wind, rhyme sleet, cleats shred, ice sheets and rip rend, death dealing blows, yet a comfort we know, for those hyperboreans buried alive and forsworn, forgotten in ice caves, forlorn in deep snow, far and forsaken from those below, whom only blither and blather to run to and fro, to drop dead and gone upon yon beyond, a hellishly heavenly afternoontide afterglow, from the October starred storm. A Scorpio swarm, fortuitous season, slouching bitch Bethlehem, your nightmare was born, and sworn whole with a laugh, pledge allegiance, no loyalty, no lease, since the ribble, the rabble, the slave's parrot, life don't matter, blood we are splattering, always at cost for slavery and its flattering, spend thrift, money, life, guns, lungs, drugs, for this teeny smattering of grim grave droll dull, gilded icons, posers, and mistakes, and their stern doldrum complaints, wails, moans, rules, schools, and belly aches, called the ideal, the moral, the just, also good the best just because even the great and the greatest men and their greatest little odds and causes and corporations and help yourself imitations more jokes for the ugliest and shallowest of folks more boredom more gratuitous nihilist stardom for whoredom but your dawn is scribbled drawn not worth the quartering it's crucified on senseless circus tent dread before arrival necrophiliac bible clown necromancer revival flaccid and placid priestly fear of passion feast on their children instead and hide in the masses cowardly condemning all life and existence too weak to face and fess up to the questions plague feet locust feast appearance neat pernicious lazy its fashion the life and times of an entire species and its god what a blundering wondering revelatory apocalyptic yawn more people crushed under what they weep for chips flinty matter to abuse getting in glad for just what they ask for flattened under statues pillars and passports always more skin to beg steel ripped to be worn but not known or asked for selling statuesque picturesque perfect universal porn screech breach pity scorn and leech we celebrate we don't mourn the death of everything that deserves it all you're hurt left in a lurch bitch everyone always ready to snitch on each other and themselves make demands as they beg for help and cry in tantrum and a maelstrom of no that's right always a fight when cowardice and betrayal are the only might of parasites everyone thinks they know what's right though they don't know their fucking place they don't know sickness from health they don't know anything at all not even themselves altogether babylon's whore is the greatest artist born choking on wealth a dying mother and rut turned vice poison on eros's shelf but what illiterate smut for the clutch so many are a bust not strong enough not dangerous no mind no dreams no purpose no guts means your perfection is not at little finger stump or hand harmony boring blathering shakespearean intrigue gathering this noisy band on its last shank and lamb a shrillin dissonant blitzkrieg conspiracy jam make the case break the chase do make haste and get away from these sheepish dogged people and their dirty cheap ignorant illiterate shallow blood money haze as the craze working dim ding dong decadent dazed undecayed ice hot soft hard lazy couch cheap creep peak of oblique memory of great men now forever long gone and now someone better are you never to be yet comes those infinitely more textured and weathered supple and buttered simply just better or above you all past lectures are done child's play 
play busy work for kitty days underneath those unfettered and inconceivable ways have already won which lays beyond all pale willowy palm fronds distant and removed from infinite yesteryears and after todays and even their bygones become long gones our past the hateful tramp magician priest nether ape the emaciated rapist vagabond the present a tasteless schloff off the slave trough from the gutter results in no mirth the worst virgin still birth our future in bad proportion half abortion half horseshit no heart or brain lame inflamed emotionally insane and embalmed ruled by the pointless shadow of invisible power and its aimless stunted factory farm mob of educated slobs jars for senseless brains no mouth to scream it strains no body to live it ghosts the violence the stains the unthinkingness of its host the squander not a wonder perfect smiling blunder not sad even happy just true a picture of forever is crucial when you're asleep without a clue but your straitjack case is your ace forever boot on face you ask for it don't back down now that everyone's so supposedly clear on the who what where why and how the lesson not in question spiritual lobotomy gurgles with or without its fatal indigestion it's the season to kill all excuses reasons questions teachers and lessons is that oh yes accidents are happy to exist too god was born an invalid a coward an empty hungry stomach no wonder his image was once upon a time you if you made it this far thanks for listening uh, again to all and none, a Merry Christmas, and to all and none, a good night. Happy New Year. Take care. Reading YouTube Comments Amberly. Kagan. I get some weird comments on YouTube occasionally. I believe it. And uh, so we're going to go through them. Okay. You're, you're going to read them. Okay. Uh, with no familiarity of like what the topic is, just out of context, mm-hmm. and uh, I'll respond to them. Maybe I'll even ask you what uh, what you think the video is about. I don't know. We'll just we'll see. We'll see as we go. Why don't we just start with the first one? I've, I've selected these um, semi randomly, but also based on like the best ones that I could find. These are by no means all of them. I mean, there's just so many, but. Um, I don't, are, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. All right. Here we go. Here's me, a woman, analyzing morality like Nietzsche. Pro-social. There. Done. Women do not need guilt or shame to be moral, nor even overcome our impulses. We simply need to exist. It seems to me like men are trying really hard to figure out how to become more like women, while simultaneously demeaning women as inferior, of course... Nietzsche was a racing misogynist, as I understand, or so I've been told. Yeah, he was a racing misogynist. Yeah. He didn't believe that women should be allowed into NASCAR, <laughs> uh, which was a very new <laughs> sport at the time. I was imagining horse racing. He's like a <laughs> jockey. <laughs> yeah, that's probably more accurate. I mean, I, I think I think that might be a, it. Just maybe might be a typo for raging <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah that's that's on the video of like will to power as the basis of all moral systems and so it's it's me talking about how nietzsche argues that like all different forms of morality whether it's utilitarianism or like kantian ethics are all based on the idea of like self overcoming so like shy of the basest hedonism where you're just like, I'm just going to follow my impulses. Like every morality basically says the point is to overcome what you like might immediately want to do for some sort of like higher principle. So you have to overcome yourself in some way. 
and that's basically the common thread he sees in all morality. I don't talk about women in it at all. Um, I think this person who's presumably a woman, well, she says, here's me a woman. Yeah, 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 right, 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 um, is basically saying women don't need morality. We're just pro-social. She seems to be saying, yeah, women are, are born into this world already perfecting the Nietzschean morality. Like, we don't need to overcome any of our impulses or feel guilt or shame. Yeah, which that's what I love. I, um, I disagree with. Women have very much base impulses, just like men. So, I think this person is probably a girl boss. And she's like, I don't need to overcome guilt or shame because I feel none already. Well, then I don't, <laughs> she's never girl bossed because you feel a lot of guilt <laughs> feel a lot and shame as a girl boss. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, well, and I should clarify, it's not the Nietzsche morality. He's saying that regard, like these, he's analyzing all moralities that exist as basically saying they have this element. He's saying when you are saying morality, what you mean is actually what I believe, <laughs> you know, as morality. But she's saying... So she's not just saying women are already following the Nietzschean morality, is my point. She's saying every morality on earth that men have come up with has been to become more... To pros- become more like women. More like women. While also being racing misogynist. Right, yeah, of course. Um, so, I mean... You- I strongly disagree <laughs> with that statement. I like- <laughs> All right, well, you heard it here, folks, from a woman. Which means <laughs> that... Uh, you're the only person who can really is allowed to respond to that. So cool. only per I think the only type of per- the, okay yeah. <laughs> of slightly more than half the population can. You're respond the most to this. woman. You're the Platonic form of woman in my view <laughs> oh. as my wife. Oh, thank so, you. Okay. Okay. Um, so okay, my wife. How would you rate this comment on scale of zero to ten in terms of how weird do you find it? Uh, this seems pretty pedestrian. I'm gonna okay. so like ten is the most weird. Yes, I'm gonna rate it a two. Okay, this is just a standard person who's unhappy and writing. Okay, a comment to let you know. Okay, that you need to talk about women more. Is that it? It I don't. Is that what she actually wants? She probably wants me to not talk at all. Well, or she wants you to talk about how great women are without mm-hmm. any um, work being done to make them great. All right. The Women Podcast is starting soon. Okay. <laughs> okay. Be- women are wonderful podcasts. <laughs> okay, next. Let's go to the next one. Next one. Homosexual relationships were not very common or accepted in ancient Greece. Lowercase. This is a common historical misconception. Homosexuality was illegal and commonly derided, although it, of course, existed there as it does anywhere. Yeah. So this is on the video for Plato's Symposium. I mean... And... Has he read Plato? Well, so that's the thing. Like, you can find... So there's been, like, more debate about this recently. Because for a long time, people would just say, like, oh, the ancient Greeks were all gay. And there's been a lot of pushback, mainly from sort of the conservative, like, trads that are like, no, they're not. And they have found... Like, you can go through and find in Plato in the laws, like, where he says, like, homosexuality is unnatural... So grant all that. The problem is Plato's Symposium. Like, it's a comment specifically on the video about Plato's Symposium, which is the work where they specifically talk about man-on-man sexual relations in a very open and, like, 
Like, it's very normalized is, in the dialogue. Is that the one where they talk about, I don't know if you use this language, but soulmates were, like, two men. Like, it could only be men and men that are soulmates, and they were born with, like, four arms and four legs, and they were ripped apart. And Yeah, so that's uh, Aristophanes' myth. Yeah. Is, but you're, you're, you're mixing two things together. Okay. There's two different... Aristophanes has that myth, and it could be... He, he basically says it could be a man and a man together. It could or be a, a woman, woman and a woman. Or a man and a woman. I didn't think he ever said it could be a woman. Yeah, it could I be. I thought it was very much like men are like in, intellectually superior. And so man on, and it wasn't necessarily man on man. It was like man, you would take like a, you'd be a mentor yes. to a younger man. And that would have some sexual involvement in teaching them about the world um and then but it was definitely an older man younger man like i don't think it would be you wouldn't be life partners forever there are different um in different speeches given in plato's symposium there are some figure i mean it's basically does seem to be assumed by all the speakers involved that two men are the only ones who can form a relationship that's like the highest type of love, which is like love of the soul. And people will even argue with this and they'll be able to see it's not sexual. And I'm like, I agree. I mean, that's why it's called platonic love, right? It's not necessarily sexual, but if you look at the whole document, like honestly, and are not trying to cherry pick things, like it's very clear when they talk about like the soldiers of uh, Thebes who are Mm -hmm. all like, um, lovers with one another Mm -hmm. um that's why they're gonna fight so hard to like defend one another on the battlefield and it seems very clear to me from context and just from the numerous remarks and the fact that Alcibiades like basically says I tried to have sex with Socrates and he refused me yeah like uh, you know people can argue like oh well these were just like the depraved elites which are in any society and I'm like okay I you can make whatever argument you want I'm just telling you what's in the What's in the book? I'm not telling you, like, making some sweeping claim about Greek society. And if you're going to raise this objection, raise it on, like, any other book than Plato's Symposium. Well, I would also have to say, you know what, just not the context of what he's commenting on. Like, I would comment, like, this is a great argument for women in the military, <laughs> right? Okay. Because in today's society... Um, heterosexuality is the norm like not everyone is heterosexuality but male and female couples make the most sense so this would say like yeah we need everyone in the military so that everyone will be fighting harder to protect mm-hmm. the people that they love that are also in the military so um or you can just I have drones give, well <laughs> that's, what, that's what we're doing now yeah, yeah, yeah. just sitting in a drone shit. but anyway so I'm giving this comment a Zero for being... It's not weird? It's not weird. Okay. Um, I'm giving a zero because, like, he missed the point. Like, the point is, right, nowadays we know that men don't have better souls and they're not smarter, so... I would disagree with that. (laughs) 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 Oh, oh crap, the woman in the first comment was right about me. (laughs) Um, So, now I know that everyone, like, your soul can love a person of whatever identity my segment uh for the christmas episode that uh this year is is about women in the military as well oh well one of them see on point yeah women or non-gendered people whoever i guess yeah uh you could argue that she was 
like non-binary maybe. Okay, uh, let's go to the next one. Why should anyone give credence to a pessimist? Uh, negation is nothing more than negation. What? Nothing comes of nothing. Nietzsche rejected Schopenhauer for the very same reason he rejected many religions. They did not, they denied negated life. You have a nice presentation and seem to affirm life, or at least ideas. Schopenhauer would not like you. He's not a thumbs up guy. I just included this one because it included the line Schopenhauer would not like you. And it's, it's like on my video about Schopenhauer. And so it's like, yeah, like the whole podcast is about like Nietzsche who rejected Schopenhauer. And it's like the one video on Schopenhauer, you're going to be like, why would anyone care about this? (laughs) Okay, well, also, I should say the most common comment that I get on the Schopenhauer video, because that's like one of my most popular videos and I still get comments on it regularly. Like, it's almost like a meme at this point. Um, that's just known to me or the people who comment on that video, just people being like Schopenhauer wasn't a pessimist. He was a realist or like, it's not pessimism. It's just the reality. So most people (laughs) seem to be like, unlike this guy, be like, yeah, thumbs down on reality. That's, that's the realistic point of view. Well, reality is what you make of it. Right. So I think that just means that those people are pessimists. Yeah, no, for real. But that's, like, they seem very adamant about, like, no, it's not pessimism. It's just the truth. Well. Um, so. I. Yeah. I don't know. What do you, th- what do you think about this one? Um, I feel like I'm missing some context because negation is nothing more than negation. Um, I guess he's just saying it's just nothing. He... He's just like, if you just reject life, there's nothing there. Like, you're not. Did Schopenhauer reject life? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he says we should deny our will to live. So we should just kill ourselves? No, suicide is wrong, according to Schopenhauer. So we should live like an ascetic, horrible, punishing life? Not punishing. You should, you should, it's Buddhism, basically. It's Western Buddhism. Don't desire anything. Okay. I mean, I disagree as a hedonist, so. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Schopenhauer Um, would not like you. Well, that's okay. Okay. Not everyone has to like everyone. Okay. Um, I mean, as far as comments go and how weird, I feel like this isn't that weird. It's on topic to the Schopenhauer. Um, right. It's not, there's no cuss okay. words. There's not even very, it seems mostly grammatically correct. Yeah, this one's, well. this one's pretty normal. So it's pretty yeah, normal. Okay. I'll give it a one. Okay. On to the next one. <clears throat> It's tragic watching a man marching into oblivion, but it becomes comedic if he marches there arrogantly. The whole of mankind is made in the image of God, not just a select few. The Hebrew Hebrew Bible freed us from the sickness of aristocratic elitism, and here you are proudly attempting to devolve humanity back into it. Esotericism, mysticism is not about abstract ideas, it's about the very opposite. Yeah, th- so I'm guessing that this guy found, this is from the Beyond Good and Evil sections 26 through 37, which I entitled this The Esoteric because Nietzsche makes a point about how it, it basically not everyone's going to agree with his ideas and you have to, it's kind of like what Plato says that learning is remembering and you know Nietzsche says one gets out of books what one already knows. Basically like it, this has to like, 
jive with you on some intuitive level. And most people are just not going to get it because it's not a universalist philosophy. And so I was like, this is an esoteric philosophy, basically. Um, maybe that's the best summary I can give. So I'm guessing this guy is like an esotericist in the religious sense and was looking for something. This is my guess. Mm. was like looking for something like that on YouTube. And he's probably like very religious. And then he's basically saying, I'm marching into oblivion. I mean, there's the implicit threat here. Like you're going to hell, buddy, uh, is basically what it is mm-hmm. for rejecting the, the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so kind of garden variety religious stuff. Yeah. But... Uh, you know, what I want to ask all these people is like, because what I always say when there's like a Christian, whenever I do respond to them, is that everyone who's ever told me like what, that there's a God or what God is like or what God wants has been a human being. I've never heard it from God. You're just <laughs> yeah. another human being like mm-hmm. saying stuff. What, what, how do you, what do you know that I don't? Well, I mean, if they're the Pope, they talk directly to God, and then they talk to you. I don't think Catholics even think the Pope talks to God. Do they think that? That's their whole... That's why they have a Pope. The Pope's infallible, but does he talk to God? I I thought that was their whole thing, that he did talk to God. Well, Mormon, the Mormon prophets definitely talk to God. Mm-hmm. Like, they actually talk to God. <laughs> I would listen to them. Well, I mean, the Prote- <laughs> Protestants... Each individually feel they talk to God. I don't know if most of them think God talks back. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, I have. I talk to God. It's just one way. Yeah. It's like okay. <laughs> well, people would argue also that they see God in the world, but again, that's. I see God in my toast. I see the Virgin Mary's face. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I see dragons in my toast, but okay, they're not they're, real. They're not real. Okay, what do you think of this? Um, again, I thought you were going to bring me weird comments. Isn't that weird? Um, I don't like, I mean, you know, Aristotle is my guy, so I don't like him taking a crack at Aristotle with the aristocratic elitism. Mm. I think, I don't know if that's a crack at Aristotle. It might be. I don't know. Well, so, um, again, not that weird. Give it a two. You you think... You think it's not weird to be proselytizing in a YouTube comments section on a Nietzsche podcast? I mean, I think it's futile. I don't think it's weird. <laughs> yeah, maybe I shouldn't have said weird at the beginning. You're you're waiting for okay, for the for those of you who listened to the last Christmas special, you're probably waiting for like a Habitran concept. I am type. waiting for a Habitran. I don't know concept. if I have like anything that weird lined up. Mm. I'm more interested in like like, the way I would put it is, like, you know, in H.P. Lovecraft's letters, there's, like, there's one letter where he gets really fired up about the Emperor Elagabalus, who was a terrible Roman emperor, but he's, like, he's like mad in the modern day, where he's, like, there's no one I hate more than that accursed little Syrian rat. Like, he is pissed. Like, he's talking about the president of America, but he's talking yeah. about somebody who lived. And so, mostly these I picked out, I'm, like, these people are, like, really into something that is, like just for me like an intellectual like exercise or like i don't know that's not weird i mean if someone called you uh, a syrian rat that would be weird i guess it would well let's see if there's something like that in the next (laughs) comment okay a sexual relationship between men is perverse it doesn't add anything to the equation we should know that sexuality does not even foster closeness or love it is great for friendship but sex needs to be channeled between men and women to establish and secure a family and children. 
That's from the video in Plato's Symposium again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, again... Uh, it's not faster at closeness or love. Does this person know science? Like, they're probably you're releasing like, chemicals that do make you feel closer. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also interesting because, again, in Plato's Symposium, they say that the highest love is not between a man and a woman. Like, okay, whether you think it's... <laughs> sexual or not they're literally talking about like the highest love is when you're like socrates's point is when you're a midwife for like the virtue of another man mm-hmm. so socrates doesn't think that the highest love is or like you know that sex needs to be channeled between a man and a woman to establish and secure a family and children that's like never argued in plato's symposium yeah. yet again i think it's somebody who's like just uh you know, anti like thing. They're they're against the idea that the Greeks were gay, or just against the idea of gayness in general. Um, yeah, but I think they're particularly angry because they don't want. They're like this is like the foundation of Western society. So if they were gay, and I'm a traditionalist, oh. then that's really detrimental to my ideology now. Okay, um, I can see that. I think. Well, I don't know. Just the, I guess it is kind of a prevalent idea with traditionalists that sex is only to establish family and children. But then what does sex have to do with anything else except having a family and children, if that's what you believe? Mm-hmm. Like, so then, like, then sex is separate from love. And apparently sex only is great for friendship. So, like... Yeah, he says it's great for friendship. Yeah, That's interesting. So, which is which is kind of what the male so and male wanna, sex yeah, they're so talking about. Yeah, so if you want to develop a, a, a partnership of the mind, you can do that with anyone and then just pick someone else to have sex and children with if that's the only point of sex. So, How would you rate this comment? I would rate this comment, um, I guess. I, I feel my scale is going to get skewed because we just had that talk because... <laughs> Uh, just, gonna... just, just, just don't think about it. just initial reaction. Uh, again, it's not, it's not that weird for the internet. I'll give it a okay. three. Okay, okay. If that's your standard, this isn't that weird for the internet. Okay, <laughs> let's move on to the next one. Please stop citing the fraud and plagiarist Einstein as if he were a genius. Mm-hmm. I've gotten this comment a couple times. What in videos? Yeah. Who thinks Einstein is not a genius? I haven't really looked into it, uh, except only like curse, just a cursory glance. And I guess there's some people who think, like maybe like with Tesla and um, and uh, Edison, that Einstein kind of just like took credit for other physicists' work. But I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I have no idea. Well, I don't know. As someone who dressed up as Einstein as a child for Halloween, I love him and. Um, He was a cute old man. Um, (laughs) Well, so, okay, you don't... How would you feel about this one? Because I think it's pretty weird to be on an anti-Einstein crusade. I agree as well. This one is pretty weird and out there. Um, So, it's definitely above a five. Um, I'll I'll put it at an eight because... Really? Okay, wow. I feel like, yeah, thinking... I don't know that weird. I I don't know. I feel like when we were growing up, Einstein was rolled out as, like, the person to compare yourself to. My audience is full of contrarians. 
Well, so you gotta you gotta factor that in. But okay, let's let's go to the next one. Let's, let's Caesar was not an exception in Roman culture. He was the direct product of centuries of Roman aristocratic energy and force. Napoleon was an exception, an aberration, as Nietzsche refers to him. I really enjoy your discussions, Nietzsche, but you've missed the fundamental essence of the Roman aristocracy. Their entire identity and reality was based upon and defined by honor and virtuosity in the most conspicuously public form possible. Conspicuously. What did I say? Conspicuously. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) There was no option to recline into a private life as we understood it. This was the essence of mas maiorum. Yeah, I believe that's how it's pronounced. The way of the ancestors. This was why Caesar was murdered by his friends. This is why Augustus was so careful to describe himself as first citizen, not king. Yeah, this is on the video about Caesar and Parenti's like reading of Roman history in Caesar. Um, I, I just picked this one because, again, it was another thing where he's like, you've missed the fundamental essence of Roman aristocracy. So he's like upset that I didn't. I, I, I don't know. Like, I I guess that I called Caesar the exception because he was the exception to the rule in that he's like literally an exceptional person who broke all of the rules. Well, I think um, um, like he fought the aristocracy you of his time. Make it to being a king, emperor, Caesar, um, first citizen, Amberly, first not citizen. a king. See, you, you, we've misunderstood the fundamentals. Well, anytime you are the person <laughs> in charge. Of a country, uh, I think you're pretty exceptional. Yeah, I agree. Um, I don't know. I, I think I kind of struggle to figure out what this guy thinks. Like, I missed the what the essence of. I guess, I guess maybe the whole thing is like the whole Roman morality is based on like everyone wants to be publicly exceptional in their virtue, and Caesar's no different than this. I I would just call him an exception because like he crossed the Rubicon. Like so he, <laughs> I'm also confused. Is he? Is this person trying to say Caesar was murdered because he was trying to retreat into a private life? And, no, I don't think he's saying. Okay, that. he's saying like all the Romans of the aristocracy lived a public life; they didn't have the option to have a private life. But um, I'm I'm confused as to why Caesar was murdered by his friends. You know, because uh, he was normal. I, he was a normal Roman. <laughs> So he was murdered by his friends. <laughs> that I mean, that was pretty normal in the late Republic, actually. So yeah, I'll agree. <laughs> okay. What do you um, think? Gosh. It's hard to tell. I, I, yeah, know. I'm not sure. But again, um, it's like it, <laughs> it's like somebody from ancient Rome getting mad at me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I'll put this at like a, we'll say a six, I okay. guess. Yeah. All right. Next one. <clears throat> Another one. Greeks did not practice <laughs> homosexuality. They denounced it as an abomination. You're thinking of Romans. Mm-hmm. I would. I want this guy to talk to the other dude from the previous comment and see what they would have to say to each other. <laughs> like the Romans were also strove to be homosexual. Mm-hmm. Would this guy think that? The previous guy, I wonder, or would he have a problem with it? The pre- The Caesar is a yeah. normal Roman guy. Yeah, yeah. Like this. So guy's- he was out there having relationships with men well he did actually he had a relationship with a king from like uh i forget the guy's name from like asia minor oh his so troops would we say but his caesar tro- was bisexual or pansexual in today's nomenclature um well oh in today's nomenclature 
I mean, because I was going to say there was a god named Pan back then, so that could be very confusing. That could be confusing. Um, I I don't know. I know there's a story that his troops made fun of him because they were like his. It was like Nicodemus. I want to say was the 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 king that Caesar supposedly had a relationship with. And I don't know if it's like known for sure, but his soldiers like made fun of him where they were like Caesar conquered Gaul, but Nicodemus conquered Caesar. Oh, so they're saying Caesar was a bottom. That's. I mean, that was the rumor. That's in the implication. Yeah, yeah. Well. You know, that prostate, okay. I haven't okay, experienced not... <laughs> it. But... This is going to be like a very inappropriate Christmas episode based on some, like basically every segment is going to be massively inappropriate. <laughs> Was this a family podcast? Never. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, we don't have to rate this one, but well, I guess we can. Let's Again, do, it's yeah. like that weird. Okay. Yeah. All right. We'll put it at a. I guess I just wanted well, to, to I, convey put, the volume of how many of these. I guess there are a lot. I'm, I'm going to put this one at a four, just because they think the Greeks weren't gay, but the Romans were. Mm, right. So that's yeah. That's okay. that's a bit weird. All right. Okay. <clears throat> the next one. This series has changed my life. I don't know if it's for the better, but it has changed my life. I sold my gaming PC and started my journey into baking, and that's basically all I do now except work, and it feels really good. I have produced bread and pastries I thought I could never do with my hands, and also accidentally invented my own unique way of doing certain things that I am surprised nobody seems to have thought about. Tried looking for it everywhere on the web and even asked a bakery. But it enhances flavor in cinnamon buns, and everyone says it's the best cinnamon, cinnamon bun they've ever tasted. I'm usually a harsh judge, but I have to agree, it tastes amazing. I write everything down that I do, and I keep track of what worked and what doesn't. I wonder what I can produce if I keep this up. I also bought my own copy of Beyond Good and Evil so I could keep up with the series, and then in between baking, when I needed to rest, I would take walks and listen to this. It really has changed my outlook on the world in both hurtful and joyful ways. I hope you will go on with some more of his books. I will return to this series. This one was not in, intended to be like a weird comment. This one is I a very to, sweet comment. I wanted to include this one because this is actually far more common of a comment for me to get. Um, and I this one stood out to me because it was like had somebody talking about like a really like it seems like a really specific thing in their life or like a really like unique way that this person's life has changed. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, I get these kind of remarks all the time, like, and it still is unreal to me, but uh, you know, there's people out there who are Nietzsche and bakers because of this um, podcast. Yeah. I want to taste those cinnamon buns. Um, Send us some cinnamon buns in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I like picturing someone out there, um, I know they said they they walk and listen on breaks, but I also imagine they're like listening to you while they're making these cinnamon buns. Yeah, and uh, that's a very sweet picture. I like it. It's so. sweet in many ways. Indeed. Um, <laughs> so I don't. Uh, yeah, we don't. We have to rate one this one on we- weirdness. Let's rate it. Rate it on sweetness. I on give it sweetness, a ten. It's a ten out of ten. Yes. Okay. Well, that's all. Like the uh, the comments I wanted to look through. Um, I guess. So there was no Habitron comment. No. I mean, and I didn't include, like, there's troll comments out there. I mean, one of them that I, like, thought about including with this guy was, like, basically saying that, uh, he said that Peter Turchin episode, he was like, this is the nightmare scientism of Goebbels, calling it, like, Nazi stuff, even though, like, Peter Turchin's, like, a liberal Democrat who's trying to, like, save democratic society and basically sees wealth inequality as the driver of, like, social, like, uh, disharmony. 
And the reason why empires fall is because they become too top heavy and like hollow out the bottom and the middle class. I'm just like, it's just that he didn't, he probably just saw this idea of a cyclical history that isn't endless upward progress and was like, you're a Nazi because you think it's not endless progress. Yeah. And it's like people like that where I'm like, I don't want to even give you the time of day. I guess I just did. I guess I just talked about it, but. I don't know. I was really hoping for some like, um, I don't know, Plato was an alien um, Nietzsche communicated with third dimensional beings. I don't know. I wanted something really out there. Um, like, I don't know. The Greeks weren't homosexuals. It was Martians that infiltrated Greek society. Um, they were the ones that were homosexual. That would have been a weird one. Mm -hmm. Um, well, uh, okay. I guess, you know, I don't know what you want from me. (laughs) These are the best ones I could find. So, all right, okay. So I'm I'm putting it out there. You guys make some weird oh, comments. Crazy people need to do better in 2024 because I want some real 10 out of 10 on the weirdness scale for next year. Okay, I'll try. I'll try and save the weirdo comments. I mean, I don't know. Maybe we won't call this weird comments. We'll just call it people who are very invested in certain historical. And philosophical <laughs> perspectives. Aren't we all, though? Uh, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.